represent? Where do writers live on in their characters? And what about your old fanfiction? All these questions and more in our interview with the Valence team right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Today, we're interviewing Will Williams and Katie Yeomans, creators of Valence, which we featured last week. Since I am a voice actor on Valence, as well as the cultural consultant for Hug House Productions, our host emeritus, David Reinstrom, has taken the helm for this interview. And you won't just hear him in the recording. You're hearing him in the background as well, because David also did the research and editing for this episode. A round of applause for the jack-of-all-trades, please. Crucial to our decision to feature Valence is the reality that this is a story near and dear to our hearts. It's a story about found family and queerness and all the messiness that involves, about surveillance and privacy and disability, and about fighting back against those who would constrain us into their boxes and erase us if we prove to be difficult about it. You can hear Will, media critic and audio producer, and Katie, writer, editor, and transcriptionist, talk about the realities of PTSD, respectability politics, and government bureaucracy that went into this story. In keeping with Valence's goals, we would like to encourage you to donate to the Black Journalist Therapy Relief Fund. Newsrooms often do not provide the resources and support necessary for Black journalists when they are dealing with the trauma incurred during their work especially as it relates to protests, racism, and police brutality. The International Women's Media Foundation has a relief fund for this purpose. You can learn about the fund and donate at www.iwmf.org slash programs slash emergency dash fund. The link is also in our episode description. Radio Drama Revival has been showcasing fiction podcasts and elevating the voices of their creators for 13 years. If you've enjoyed this show, if it's helped you or healed you or done the unforgivable and increased your episode queue, there are a couple of ways to support our continued existence. First, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. We have a special Discord server for all our patrons, where we organize monthly meetups with listening parties, silly and informative PowerPoint presentations on podcasting, and more. Second, remember that we have the ticker tapes. For a small fee, you can share a message with the rest of Radio Drama Revival's audience. I'll read the messages, and they can be a birthday card, a quick podcast advert, a casting announcement, whatever you have that needs an audience like this one. You can learn more at radiodramarevival.com slash ticker tape. Please be aware that the following conversation contains discussions of trauma and PTSD, government and its role in the lives of disabled people, queer people, and international students, the packaging and commodification of queerness for cishet consumption, and discussion of the surveillance economy. Katie and Will, it feels really weird to say this since I see you once a week for production <laughs> meetings, but welcome to Radio Trauma Revival. How's that for a caveat? Well, thank it's you for good. having us. Right at the yeah, top of the thank show. You. So unexpected. <laughs> so unexpected. Um, hello, welcome. Uh, Katie, I want to start with you. Oh, no. 
you've been working as a federal contractor for the NIH for a few years. Yes. And Will, you used to work for ASU as an mm -hmm. international student advisor. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you both, what have those experiences taught you about government or bureaucracies? And how have you translated <laughs> those experiences into writing the Thaumaturgical Energy Association? Katie, let's start with you. Whew. Yeah. Oh, God. I... There's literally a sound design note in season one that was me bitching about working in a moldy basement that hadn't been touched since the 1970s uh -huh. and looked and smelled like it, um, which was in my mind a lot of a lot of what I drew from for the TEA offices. <laughs> because that's what your office was like, Katie, right? The moldy basement. Yep. Absolutely. It. I mean, I presume it still is. I just haven't been there since March of 2020. Right. And Will, what about you? So the thing about working at ASU with international students is that, like, it's one of the least appealing jobs at a university, I think, um, because it's it's not cushy and it's not easy. You You're working with two different radically different infrastructures. You're working with a university and you're working with the government. And for me, that meant a lot of direct communication with things like uh, CBP, things like USCIS, um, things like ICE several times. I had to speak to ICE several times. And people who work in that job, your job is to protect international students from these government agencies. So it takes a lot of passion and a lot of emotional energy. Um, it's a very thankless job. And because it's at a university, it's also not a well-paid job. And because it's in the government, it's also not a well-paid job. <laughs> uh, but the problem is what I found in working with government agencies that are very like politically motivated in very specific, very sociological, emotional ways is that the people who work directly with the people at risk are motivated and driven and they have that emotional energy and they're working in that job not because, you know, not because it's easy or fun, but because they care deeply. And everyone as close as one step higher in the hierarchy is working in that job likely because they started where we are, then they got a promotion, and now they get paid really well and they do not have to care. Mm. Then you get one step up above them, and it's people who just see all of us as, like, numbers. We were just constantly at odds with a government who didn't give a shit about actually taking care of international people. Um... So all of that translated into uh, a feeling with the TEA and the government treatment of muses in the valence world overall, having hostility unless something could increase revenue. That is genuinely <laughs> how I see government offices. Yes, I, I would agree with the assessment. Katie wrote this uh, like really beautiful semi-monologue for Grace in season two about Grace's experiences and history um, in the government with the TEA that I think about all the time. And I think it's just like a perfect encapsulation 
of how these offices work. As it relates to the themes of Valence, what do y'all think government is for? And what isn't it for? Oh, what a question. I Hi, think... David. Good to have Hi. you back. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Damn. I think what it's for evolves dramatically from when it's put in place to when to when those ideals come up against reality. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. It's it's very easy to have these these ideals and these goals and I have a terrible feeling that the ideas people and the putting things in motion people do not often overlap and maybe don't even communicate. So concretize this for me, Katie, because when when you say that, I'm thinking of Grace's conversation with Liam in season one about the idea of the U.S. government providing more resources for muses. And Liam Mm -hmm. says, what you're describing sounds like a registry that is ripe for abuse. Is that what you're talking about? Like the conflict between the ideas people and the execution people? I think that's a large part of it. I... The, the people making the plans are very rarely those who are affected by the plans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <sighs> reproductive health for people with uteruses, for example, mm-hmm. uh, does the decisions do not often seem to be in the hands of uh, the people <laughs> with the uteruses. <laughs> And so it's just, it's not a reflection of reality, what decisions are being made and the reasons given for those decisions. When we wrote season one, um, one of the things that we talked about was the motto from disability activism of nothing about us without us. And like, to be totally clear, uh, none of the people who are writing and actively creating Valence are, like, without disabilities. We are all uh, mentally ill on top of other things. Um, so there's this concept of if you are not including us at every aspect of mm. legislature, of decisions, it will not actually serve us. It is impossible to serve us in a way that is real if we're not included. And that was one of the things that we we came back to over and over and over again in that first season especially. Cool. Thank you both. So I want I let's let's pivot to talking about magic because magic in valence to me seems to represent so many different things at once, but I don't want to mm-hmm. put words in y'all's mouth. So I I would like to ask what does valence's magic represent to you? What why is it so precious and why are some people so afraid of it? Hmm. So when I when I first wrote the novel that Valence is based on, um, I thought of magic as a representation for mental illness, which is like something that we see pretty commonly, especially in urban fantasy, um, as something that you can't control, something that is a part of who you are. Something that makes you see the world differently, but makes people terrified of you. As somebody who was diagnosed with PTSD when I was 18, 19, and who has had, like, side effects of mental illness that are really ugly and really 
you know, that make relationships really difficult, relationships of any kind really difficult at times, especially when I was more or less untreated. Um, the sort of dehumanization that comes with that um, while also existing inside myself and knowing that because of my PTSD, and I don't want to glamorize it at all. Uh, if I could, if I could choose, I would never <laughs> have to live with like the nightmare cocktail of mental illness I've got. It fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has made me, I think, much more self-aware and made me much more analytical and much more critical in in ways that I think other people who can live day to day without analysis like don't necessarily get. Um, so that was the first idea when I wrote it. And then as I kept writing it, especially when I was starting to make valence proper, it became, for me, more a metaphor of of queerness, of being queer, of being, again, you know, dehumanized in these ways. But, like, being queer is a lot more fun than being mentally ill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, I, think um, I gained a lot more reverence. For the magic there, you know, um, when I wrote when I wrote Stable, the novel that Valence is based off of, um, magic was like cool and it made you different in certain ways. But I don't think that it was as precious and as like beautiful as we've made it in Valence, um, which feels a lot more like being queer to me. <laughs> Well, then I have a question for you, actually. Oh! How does Luis play into this? I mean, <laughs> so so Luis is, like, uh, perhaps our only cishet character. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Luis is also, like, uh, you know, like David, um, an honorary <laughs> queer. <laughs> Amazing. Like, Luis is romantically involved with a non-binary polyam person. You know, they are, like primary partners for each other which does not make Louise queer I mean depend oh lord I don't want to unpack that conversation about if you are queer if you're in a quote-unquote queer relationship and what that means blah 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 um but I also like I really like metaphors that aren't one-to-one mm-hmm. um so as David can attest uh I really love for instance Stars, which is a show about an animal world but unlike Zootopia, which has a similar concept, there really, really is not a one-to-one allegory going on. You can't look at Beastars, which discusses predators versus prey, as like an allegory for racism, which you could do in Zootopia. And it's right there. Like, it's right there. Yeah. Beastars kind of shies away from any direct comparison. And, and I like that for magic in Valence. But also Katie... I would like to know about what magic represents to you in Valence. It's like a self-winding watch. This thing runs itself. (laughs) I actually ask myself this a lot and I don't have a good answer for it yet. I know that we made a personality quiz on, you know, what what kind of magic would you have? Mm -hmm. But I don't like thinking of it as a neat and tidy little representation of their personalities because I Mm -hmm. think that's very reductive. Mm-hmm. I think that does a disservice to the characters. I mean, I admit on the on the first reading, the the othering of muses. My initial mental jump was, oh, kind of like X Men, and then I yeah. read 
more and I got to know these characters better through the game. Um, and I don't know that I would make that same jump now. Through the, uh, we should we should flag for the, the role-playing game that right. eventually turned into the novel that turned into Valence. Uh, and Will, I think your comparison to Beastars is apt because I... Now that you've spoken this, I, I do feel like magic in Valence represents disability. I feel like it represents queerness, but also sometimes a cigar is a cigar and it right. just is magic, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, and I, but I do want to tease out the distinction in the in-world terms muse and maven, right? Mm. Muses are magic users and mavens are magic havers. That is, muses who choose not to exercise their powers. And to me, that feels like a rich vein of metaphor. Um, <laughs> can you tell me about magic shame and magic pride? Mm. Yeah. Um Man, so this is something that I can actually, at least for myself, dissect in both disability and queerness. Um, when it comes, I have, I think, like, maybe opposite perspectives <laughs> on this uh, for those two different things. So when it comes to disability, there's a lot of discussion about if we say, for instance, a person with disabilities or a disabled person um, for a while the like quote unquote correct way of discussing somebody was a person with disabilities where you center the person and not the disability you know you put their their personhood first um and i believe that again going back to nothing about us without us that that decision was like largely made and publicized by people who aren't actually disabled because to my knowledge the currently accepted most you know most empathetic way to discuss us is a disabled person like you just okay. say it you know like it's like no big deal like it's fine and trying to trying to separate the person from their disability is reductive and kind of insinuates that a person with a disability you're like oh yeah they're a person but also they have a disability you know and and when it comes down to it like i know personally that, like, I can't be separated from my PTSD. I can't be separated from my ADD. I can't be separated from my depression or anxiety, which isn't to say that I am my PTSD, but, like, to put my PTSD as, like, an asterisk in my identity is so, uh, like, hilariously misguided mm -hmm. <laughs> because of how much my perspective is shaped by my, my PTSD. On the opposite side... When it comes to queerness, you know, we have uh, some camps who are very, very, very tied to their labels and their identities. And I used to be like this. I, like, for instance, I'm bisexual and I did not realize this until my mid-20s because of all of the stigma that comes around the word bisexual. So when I first came to that identity, I was really married to specifically saying I am bisexual. And now, kind of like the queerer I get, and, and this is obviously person to person, but like, I have much less of a tie to any specific identity label. Um, I use them mostly for the ease of communicability versus, like, any mm -hmm. actual tie I have to things. I would much rather just say, like, yeah, I'm across the board queer. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just queer. Um, 
but when it comes to magic, um, you know, we have these discussions of having magic is something that makes you scary, but something that we can make cute with mm-hmm. marketing and with products. And part of that is this idea of like, oh, I'm a magic haver. You know, I'm not, I am not someone who uses magic. I just happen to have it. It's it's <laughs> dormant. I have it, but it's not who I am. Um, and <laughs> trying to distance yourself from the act of using magic, even if you have magic, is, I think, a way of getting closer to quote-unquote normalcy, you know? Like, even though any concept of normalcy is, like, completely fake in any world, like, that's not a thing, um, trying to make yourself seem more like an average person is, I think, always really attractive, especially when there is capital involved. So one thing that you'll notice in Valence is that the primary people we have saying Maven instead of Muse are all like influencers or public figures. It is mm-hmm. directly tied to their income and their capital. And therefore, you know, we see them getting closer to this idea of normalcy. We can see this in queer celebrities who really play into a sort of, uh, what is the term I'm looking for here? Like a commodified queerness? Yeah. Is this like the Colton Underwood How to Be Gay series where it's like one handsome blonde gay guy being coached to be gay by another handsome blonde gay guy yes and with the terminology itself uh muse versus maven when we were trying to think of what terms we would like to use muse made sense because it's just magic and user smushed together as people will normally do with language Mm -hmm. whereas maven in my mind did not come about organically. That was a yeah. <laughs> manufactured term. That was that was tested against mm-hmm. audiences because it doesn't. It's not a perfect. Uh, you can't see it coming smoothly out of Magic Haver. It doesn't no, sound not at all. right. Right. And Magic Haver itself is like such a clunky, weird it's a way of saying bizarre something. Bizarre word combo. Mm-hmm. Which is why, yeah, in in my brain, that's not that's not something that people used until they saw it on Instagram being used by their favorite <laughs> celebrities who happen to have magic. Well, I want to I want to pivot. Um, I think all the characters contain elements of both of your personalities, but Nico <laughs> and Liam especially oh, seem God. like windows into your id specifically will like what you would be <laughs> if, if you gave free reign to the twin exaggerated extremes of your personality right uh-huh. untrammeled manic <laughs> keep up with me loser carnality in nico and sweet avoidant brilliant but doubt stricken liam uh-huh. and will you said you said as much right in your inside podcasting interview with sky pillsbury oh yeah which is why i want to start with katie here katie oh no yes how do how oh, do no. you oh yes how do you approach writing for these characters what's it like to write these exaggerated versions of one of your dearest friends oh god with nico i just panic the whole time <laughs> i just panic the whole time there's no gemini in my chart um <laughs> no i i with nico i am leaning heavily on my experiences 
playing off of him in the tabletop game, honestly, like heavily playing off of that. Um, With Liam, I think the moments in which he sounds most like me are when he is sad and pining, which says some things. But I... We don't have time to unpack that. We And we won't. <laughs> and you can't make me. Uh, I think sometimes I do take a first crack at it and then need to circle back around. There are moments in which... In, in season two, where in our initial script drafts, um, you can you can tell that I had just recently watched Sense and Sensibility because that... <laughs> that cadence sort of snuck into how I was writing Liam. Uh, Which is, I mean, not wrong. It's not wrong, but I don't, I don't ever want to go full Austin with. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, some of it is, some of it is trial and error. And I think that's, there's something valuable about having a writing partner where you're comfortable taking a crack at it and going, Hey, I need help tweaking this to make it right where katie where do you see yourself the most in the characters like how much of you is in luis or mahira or am i just projecting what i know about you onto those characters in particular oh um with luis i don't know that there's a ton of me oh i totally disagree that's so funny what? I I think the overlap is mostly that Luis and I are both very much caretaker oriented yes. people. But that's Will, that's you as well. <laughs> yeah, but it's not only me. Fair. With Myra, I She's like me if I were cool. <laughs> Katie, shut up, you are cool. You know, no, but not in the not in the daring do way. Sure. So Myra was originally in in her very very first iteration uh, a completely different character in a project that I had been working on when I was an undergrad, and so she's kind of been rattling around in my head in, in one form or another since like 2013, 2012, somewhere in there. Um, she has changed radically since then, obviously. But I think the the big sister aspect and the wanting to help and not always knowing how to go about it without kind of catching on someone else's jagged edges mm. is very much me. It's funny, I keep jumping back to Luis because you mentioned that. I've I've written a handful of... I jokingly call them fanfic uh, of of little like side story. Oh, we'll get to the fanfic, Katie. Te- no, that's actually not allowed. <laughs> uh, some some little like side story scenes for the characters to to give to patrons, um, and one of them is Luis and Sol back when Sol was still working on their PhD, mm-hmm. and. The way in which Luis looks after Sol when they're too wrapped up in their work and kind of like, it's a little bit flirty and a little bit teasing and a little bit, you do actually need to to step away from the computer sometimes and breathe. I think that dynamic is very much me when I'm in a relationship. I also think that like Flynn's version of that with Liam 
Mm-hmm. You know, like shit talking, very sibling energy, but like always rooted in taking care of somebody. Also mm-hmm. very you. Oh, I there is a scene in which <laughs> Flynn uses for Liam a nickname that I sometimes fling at my sister. I, I will jokingly call her my little chicken nugget. Uh-huh. That okay. That was one of my favorite line readings in season one. It's so good. It, it felt oh, I, like I, you know, I've I've listened to the show a couple times, and like the last time that I, the most recent time that I listened to it, I bolted upright and laughed because <laughs> it just felt it felt oh. so real. It felt mm-hmm. so true. And Caleb consistently kills it. He's so good. Every every line reading Caleb gets us mm-hmm. is flawless yes. and totally different. Mm-hmm. He is amazing. He's so amazing. And it all sounds completely natural. Like always. Every line he delivers sounds improvised. Like I thought it was. It sounds completely natural. And that's the thing, is like I sometimes like have trouble remembering what we wrote and what he did. Uh, Because his actual improv is equally good and as cohesive with the story and the writing as our, like, actual script. It's wild. Caleb's amazing. What a gift. Caleb, if you're listening, you're a gift. Yes. (laughs) Will, let's pivot to you. Um, what, What do you hope the audience comes to understand about themselves when they hear Liam and Nico's stories? Ooh. Mm. Wow, I've never considered that. I am so much in my own head, kind of like exhuming my own shit when I write that I, and also this goes back to a lot of my own like imposter syndrome. I really honestly forget that we ever have an audience when we write. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But thinking about it now, something that I think about a lot um, is the kind of discomfort that uncomfortable media can bring to you and what you do with it. So, so I think about this a lot when it comes to Liam's inner monologue. Um, and this guides, like, how real and intense I want to get with it from scene to scene. Um, depending on who you are, I really want things like Liam's inner monologue or... Nico's self-destruction or Liam's different, quieter self-destruction or the way that they misunderstand each other, um, et cetera, et cetera. For some listeners, I want them to hear that or to read it, et cetera, um, engage with it how they will. Um, I want some listeners to be comforted by that and to realize that, like, certain, you know, certain experiences, especially when you're certain types of mentally ill, are to some degree ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that for a long time, you know, as cliche as this is going to sound, like I really have felt like I'm the only one who thinks some of the awful things that I do about myself or the state of the world or the purpose of being alive, et cetera, et cetera. For others, I want them to be alarmed and (laughs) stressed out and to process that and to think about why they're reacting that way to characters and then to hopefully gain a better understanding um, for those of us who do experience this uh, day to day. And, 
you know, to think more critically about how they view mental illness or anything else that that others us and makes us introspect in these harmful ways. Uh, Will, let's continue with you. Um, you said in your interview with Sky that in the period when you were writing the original novels, you didn't have health insurance or mm -hmm. access to a therapist. And so writing these characters constituted a cathartic or a therapeutic practice. Um, and I think I think you get from the show, like the extent to which these characters represent your deepest fears about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but to what extent do they also represent your secret hopes for yourself? <laughs> Ooh, um... right? Because like I, I, I yeah. the the very structure of valence right from giving us this internal monologue that feeds us this direct line of all of liam's insecurities like that's very evident to um to the audience right mm -hmm. but but there's a way in which you know because these characters have access to magic there's like a power fantasy a bit you know it's interesting uh, when when i think of how these characters reflect my hopes for myself, I actually think much more on a, like, self-worth and relationship level. Sure. Um, the magic is there and it's cute and it's fun. Um, don't get me wrong, if I had the ability to teleport to somewhere, uh, yes, please. That's, Especially in Arizona, like, right? Yes, that's like the one magical ability that I've written where I'm like, I want that shit. Um, but more so, like, arguably, other than the things that have happened to me in my life that have caused, like, all these mental illnesses I talk about, the other, like, most recurring angst in my life comes from a feeling of, again, this probably ties back to all that shit, but being almost understood, but in certain ways fundamentally misunderstood and perhaps not worthy of understanding fully. So when it comes to the relationships that Liam establishes through the show, largely with the uh, T-E-A-M, the team, as we call them, <laughs> and with Nico, there are a lot of conflicts around how people understand Liam um, and how people underestimate Liam or overestimate Liam, especially when it comes to emotional security. Mm -hmm. um, and then arguably his, his ties to Nico and his attraction and draw to Nico is that even when they misunderstand each other in just words, they fundamentally understand who the other is as a person. And they do that tacitly, almost. They just get each other. Um, and that is something that I have, like, I have found in certain people who I keep in my life, but it's something that I'm constantly striving for and constantly in search of. Um, and that, I think, is the most aspirational to me, is finding these people like Liam has who either immediately understand him as a person or have done the work to listen to him and to 
pay attention to how he speaks and how he acts and how he reacts to gain that understanding. That is the most aspirational thing to me. Sure. And the most powerful magic of all, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I realize that sounds kind of flip. I'm like, oh, so friendship is, ma-, you know, but like, I, I, no, I do, but like, I do mean that. No, but like, legit, it is, though. Yeah. yeah. Like, to truly understand somebody, I think especially in an age where we have to commodify ourselves, like, you know, a lot of this is probably shaped by the fact that I am somebody whose livelihood largely comes from a social media identity, which I hate. Like, I hate that. I hate everything about it. Um, and that has also obviously contributed to this angst. Um, it's powerful to know somebody. It's powerful and it's terrifying and beautiful and important. Thank you, Will. Yeah. Katie, it's time to turn the dread gaze of this interview back <laughs> on you once again. Um one of the things, Katie, when that I came across when I was researching y'all for this interview mm-hmm. uh, was your old AO3 page, your fan oh, fiction no. archive. And, and something that I really appreciated about your fanfic was how agile it was, like how your writing style... Oh, God, you read it? Yeah, of course I read it. Oh, no. How, how your writing style changed across different canons. Uh, and so I'm asking here, how has your experience with fanfic prepared you to write in and share ownership of a world that initially belonged to Will? A large part of having been involved in fanfiction since I was God, like 14 is that I have sort of forced myself to develop this ability to mimic other writing styles and mimic voices of characters um because be being told that i nailed the characterization was like the highest praise like i would be floating for a day or two when i would get comments about that when you write fic for something like you know a a marvel property uh the writers odds are will never know you exist and so the stakes are fairly low because if if joe nobody from wisconsin is like well you 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 didn't do (laughs) hawkeye correctly i'm like okay that's your opinion bye um (laughs) but if will says you didn't do nico properly um i die inside (laughs) (laughs) at no point has will ever actually said this Um, no of course but I have anxiety. And so I come up with these worst case scenarios, um, none of which have played out so far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we, we've talked about this a little bit so far, but I want to I want to dive deeper into it. I know it was important to both of you to have queer characters in Valence who are complex and who, frankly, mm. kind of suck sometimes mm-hmm. and hurt each other <laughs> and themselves and learn and develop and sometimes agonizingly refuse to learn. Um, tell me about why this was important to you from a story perspective, but also from like a political perspective. I mean, uh, so identity politics and uh, respectability politics are things that are pretty much constantly on my mind, Um, especially like as I've discovered more facets of my queerness over Mm. and over consistently being like, what, what else? What else can I dig up? How is there more? There always is somehow. There's this there's this idea of bad representation of 
showing queer people in a negative light as complex and fucked up characters and sometimes people like you said who who refuse to grow as people who are messes who are bad people sometimes um there's this idea that showing queer people like this gives cishet people more reasons to hate us and i understand that i absolutely do i've been of of that philosophy for big chunks of my life and who's to say that i won't return to that way of thinking for whatever reasons as i grow and as i learn but where i am right now my philosophy is cishet people will always hate us They'll always find reasons to think that we're abhorrent, even if we're the most morally upright person in their eyes, regardless of being queer. As soon as you add that, we're fucked. As soon as you add that, they hate us anyway. I don't... I... Because I'm a mess, and because I'm a queer person, and because I have uh, huge monumental flaws as a person... um. I really struggle to feel represented by most things. My favorite depictions of PTSD are horror films. I feel very represented by The Babadook and Hereditary. I don't feel very represented by like, you know, like TV, typical TV dramas that try to depict trauma because they usually feel very, very distant from me. The way that my brain feels is much closer to awful horror movies than anything else. Um, so when I think of the media that matters to me and makes me feel seen and gives me catharsis and and makes me feel represented as specifically a queer person, I always think of really fucked up messed up queer characters <laughs> that other people might point to and be like this is bad representation um i just don't think that there's any such thing as good representation i think i've gotten very far away from your question no um, that was exactly <laughs> the question <laughs> well good yeah i just i think i i think if i made something where there were queer characters who existed without a, a lot of the kinds of fucked up that being a queer person in a very cishet world. Like, I, I think I can only feel represented and proud of my work if it represents the ways that I've been fucked up by a society that hates me. And you put this directly in Liam's mouth at one point. You you <laughs> true. have him say that he never had representation of, of queer folks who weren't a sterile, sanitized, palatable version. Yeah. I mean, like, how, how can we learn how to how to grow and how to not cause other people harm when we're a fucking mess <laughs> if if nobody talks about how to do those things when you're a fucking mess you know like it really bothers me when when conversation about being a queer person who sometimes does harm because you're a mess like i i hate when that's stifled our history is kept from us. Conversation is kept from us at every mm. step of our being. Like, we have no models. And I don't think that I can write without attempting to give some kind of a model, even just for myself. If the only representation we have is squeaky clean, perfect, shining paragon, uh, how must it feel 
when you fuck up and you yes. don't have an example of you you feel like you don't measure up to the only scraps of quasi representation you have and that makes you feel even more erased even mm -hmm. more unacceptable okay so so related to the complexity of representation in the show the show also introduces narrative complexity right Liam's family is complicit in the harms perpetrated by Riley and Halo, and it makes it more tangly than a straightforward bad guy is bad narrative, right? They can't just blow up the facility. Liam's sister is in there. Mm -hmm. um, what can y'all tell me about the desire to complicate the narrative in that way? So this is something that I had to think about a lot uh, when I worked at ASU, you know, is like, how complicit am I in immigration policy that I have to find ways to work within to protect these students in a way that doesn't completely ethically compromise me. And I got about, I got around that in a lot of ways, none of which <laughs> I'll be discussing here for a lot of reasons. Uh, <laughs> I think it's really important to understand that there are so few issues that are black and white you know like we can say so for instance we can say like ableism bad yes absolutely absolutely uh how we go about actually um actually fixing that is a whole different issue and this is uh going back to what katie said about like the ideas versus the reality so mm. Something I think about a lot is how this ties to things like abolition, you know, where we see we see abolitionists or people who talk about abolition also talking about things, you know, where like, oh, we should be locking up all of the people who do this crime, where our philosophies are at odds with what we think is practical or what we think that we're capable of, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that it's very easy and very, the word coming to mind is tasty, so that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Palatable? That's probably the better one, but I'm going to stick with tasty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's very easy and tasty to have very clear morals and philosophies based on the things that we think are equi equitable and the things that we see as justice. And to have those be really tested and confronted when it comes to the realities of how we go about getting to an ideal situation. Um, especially because, like, the way that society works under structures like capitalism and, like, a carceral state means that sometimes people need to do their job. So when it comes to, like, Halo, for instance, or, you know, we can see this in discussions about blowing up the Death Star in Star Wars is like, what about the fucking janitor, dude? Like, <laughs> what about what about the janitor and the janitor's family? You know, like, what do we do about things like that? I think that it's really important to, if you're writing media where you have these like big philosophical concepts like discrimination bad, you actually break down the nuances of what that looks like in a real society with real people and. Granted, valence is very much fictional <laughs> in so many ways, but, like, we try to make it reflect real life. And I think that it's vital to bring up these discussions about what that means in practical application. Right on. 
the the music so this question comes from ellie um the music in season one is by raul vega uh, but season two's Mm -hmm. composer is travis reeves and both of these folks are extremely impressive musicians but ellie wanted to know why y'all made the decision to have a new theme tune for season two because that's not something that fiction podcasts commonly Mm -hmm. do a new theme for each season i think part of it is that we thought it would be uh sick as hell i mean yes (laughs) (laughs) yes um but part of it is that liam has changed dramatically from the beginning to the end of season one and i i think he continues to change uh which is why spoiler season three will also have different music um oh boy but (sighs) we also sort of do like capsule concepts for each season yes so we really like having each season have a very distinct feel and a very distinct concept so if season one was a sort of like avengers assemble season two is a deep cover spy story Mm -hmm. and season three is neither season three We'll have, yes, another, (laughs) it will follow the vibe of another common story structure. Um, So we like having the themes reflect those feels as well. Mm. Cool. So I want to, I want to end tonight by asking you, um, how did y'all feel when Amazon one of several real-life analogs for Riley Industries, <laughs> released a wearable dystopian health-tracking device oh called a Halo. God, Jeff Bezos owes us money! <laughs> this is IP theft. Uh, I have this awful curse oh where I am a modern-day Cassandra. I hate it. Uh, it's really bad. Like, for instance, I called... I wrote pitches about... Bon Appetit milkshake ducking to like several publications a-, a few months before Bon Appetit milkshake ducked. I did this with Jenna Marbles leaving YouTube. I did this with like big changes in beauty YouTube. I've done this with media so often. And this one, this one's the most annoying because it's not just media. <laughs> it's some real horseshit. Uh, I really hate it. <laughs> I'm very tired. I wish this... Oh, oh, also, also, there... <laughs> I mean, there have been a few things from Valence that have, like, come true, quote-unquote. Another is that Stable, uh, which was written without an E. It was S-T-A-B-L. Mm. That's the name of the first, uh, the first novel. And there is some kind of podcast company that I don't understand with the exact same name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so uh, my reaction was just, like, a fucking course. And, of course, they're going <laughs> to profit off of this. Ugh. Uh, there's audio somewhere of you showing it to Zach? Yeah, probably. And him being like, wow, this has Riley Stink all over it. I mean, in Zach <laughs> words, but yeah. yes. Probably not far off from Riley yeah. Stink. The thing about writing writing a piece of fiction that largely discusses data privacy, mm-hmm. where you try to make everything as, like, hyperbolically nightmarish as you can, is that, unfortunately, it always comes true. Yep. 
You just get scooped. Yep. You just get oh, scooped. I hate that. By Amazon. Mm-hmm. The indignity. I hate that, but I love I loved this. <laughs> this is very good. Those are uh, those are all of my all of my questions. Is there anything you want yeah. you want to talk about that I didn't cover? I do want to say one thing that I think is really important to Hug House and to Valence is that like you know, Katie and I are the are the head writers of the show, but I want to talk up the fact that like so much of Valence is informed by our cast. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to um writing aspects of ourselves in Liam, I think that we can both say that we now also include parts of Josh in Liam sure. because his performance Absolutely. is so important. We talk about Caleb and his incredible improvisation and line deliveries, but I think it's also important to talk about how he adds to the world, sometimes in very tangible ways, like in season two, we brought him on to do story consulting. Uh, mm-hmm. Katie Chin has named so many things in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, literally all of our cast, in some way, has contributed to the world and the writing Um so I think I think it's just really important to prop them up and say that like Valence wouldn't be written the way that it is without them. And mm-hmm. they are instrumental in how the show works on like every level. Our cast is really fucking great. Uh, mm-hmm. I really love them. <laughs> yeah, I'm seconding that. They are very dear to <laughs> us and also yes. just shockingly good at what they do. Yes, consistently. Well, thank you both so much for for submitting to be interviewed. Uh, <laughs> thank you for I, having us of thank course you. I'll see you on Monday <laughs> see you on Monday <laughs> well I mean what am I supposed to say like come back anytime like you you know we work together we'll come back anytime I'll you see come you back. in the slack punk. oh boy <laughs> wait 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 I'll, I'll do it again y'all come back now you here is that good it's a little perfect I, thanks yes <laughs> If you liked what you heard, you can support Valence and the rest of Hug House Productions by joining their Patreon at patreon.com slash hughousepods. Radio Drama Revival runs on very little sleep and the microphone whispering back in the middle of the night. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of fan. Do you ever make a right turn instead of a left when you're leaving work and end up at a little coffee shop with a queer barista and order a second coffee, even though you already have one in the car, and enter into your own coffee shop AU? Here's your chance. Make that right turn instead of a left. Do something different this week and just See what happens. And that means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalabuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaolitz Indian tribe, and the Athfalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support or donate to Native communities, Nicholas Gollanin and First Light Alaska are running a fundraiser to benefit the land back movement. All funds raised go to acquisition and land management funds of the Native American Land Conservancy to repatriate land back to indigenous communities. This is not about removing people from the land. 
This is about recognition and respect for indigenous sovereignty and knowledge about ecosystems, climate, and caretaking of the land. You can donate to this initiative at www.gofundme.com f slash land back. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Rishika Rao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouse and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome.